Good morning, everybody. My name is Mike Shoka. I'm a member here at Franconia Baptist Church. I'm truly delighted to speak to you this morning about God's Word. What an amazing privilege it is to have unlimited access to God's Word, to know from God what is true about us, about our hearts, about who God is and what He's like. We have Bibles on our phones, Bibles that can arrive on our doorstep overnight, Bibles right now that you can reach out, touch, open, and read from in your pews. Did you know there are still more than 1,600 languages around the world for which Bible translation has not even begun? What a great grace we've been shown. Because the Bible, inspired by and preserved by God, stands alone as wholly sufficient and the sole authority on all things necessary for salvation. So you should only give credence to what I say this morning if you see it for yourself in the text. God's word means everything. Mike Shoka's words mean nothing unless it is true to what God says is true in his word. My hope this morning is that with God's help, I can make the truth of his word plain and that it would cause the believers of Franconia Baptist Church to savor and treasure and cherish and be satisfied more with God and that we would be stirred up to obedience and growth and holiness. If you're visiting this morning and don't believe in God, or perhaps you would say God is real, but you don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have real faith in him, I and we as a church are so thankful you're here and willing to listen. The truth about who God is and the free offer of grace that he extends to you right now is eternally important. We're dealing with weighty issues this morning. I'm not up here this morning to entertain you. I'm here to tell you where life can be found. Free, abundant, eternal life. And I pray that you too would leave changed. So let's begin with our text, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, <clears throat> so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk with them, that we should walk in them, rather. We will begin this morning right where Paul begins. None of the splendor of verses 4 through 10 will be felt in proper degree 
if we don't get what Paul is saying in these first three verses. And he wastes no time getting to the point. How did it start? And you were dead. For us to understand in what sense Christians then and now were, past tense, dead, Paul directs us to the root or the cause of the deadness. The reason for the deadness will shed light on the reality of the deadness. Look again at the text. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The deadness, Paul says, is a result of living in sin. We walked in sin, and the result of our sin was a spiritual deadness of our hearts. To prepare you this morning, our first point feels burdensome and weighty. But if you had a hidden ailment, it would be a good thing for a doctor to discover it. Not good to have it, but good to know that you have it. The Bible says we all have a hidden ailment, sin. And it's good to learn of it so that we can go about healing. Right, so Paul really means for us to hear that we all, because of our sinful hearts, are as spiritually dead as a corpse is physically dead. And we get clarity on what is meant by this word dead in verse 12 of chapter 2, which says that we are separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. We have alienated ourselves from the God, the giver of life. And in fact, Paul elsewhere in Romans chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 1 describes us as being enemies of God. And the best word to describe this terrifying reality is dead. That seems harsh. It is because we have a deficient view of the gravity of our sin. Look at Paul's description of sin in verse 3. Living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So what, you might say? What's the big deal? I want to do what makes me happy, what will please me, what is so bad about that? But Paul says, no, dead. Why is that? Well, the reason our self-centered me-focused living is such a big deal is most clearly illustrated in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 25, and it is this, that despite knowing in the deepest fiber of our soul that there is a God to whom we owe our existence, and despite seeing this real God's glory, majesty, and power being on vibrant display to us every day in the intricacy and beauty of the created world, our heart's desire has not been to marvel at, honor, praise, love, and live for God. Rather, we have exalted primarily in our own selves. By our nature, none of us seeks for God or reveres him in our hearts. And we have all exchanged his glory for our own. That is, we despise the creator and we worship the created creature of self. This great exchange that we make is why in our text, Paul calls humanity sons of disobedience because God has designed us to know him and love him and our God as our God and we have blatantly disobeyed his divine decree. 
And so the reason that living for ourselves in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind is significant is because it attempts to raise us to the level of the ultimate and suppresses the reality of God as ultimate. We attempt to usurp the kingship of God and suppress, suppress the truth that God, the one true God, is supreme and holy and worthy of our honor and affections. We deny the fundamental godness of God, the God who had no beginning, who lacks nothing, who calls into existence things which do not exist, as he did before time when he spoke the universe into existence so that we might see his power and perfection and enjoy forever the pleasure of knowing our creator. And when we see the work of his hands in the design of creation, how seemingly impossibly intricate the earth we live in is, never mind the some 70,000 million, million, million stars in the observable universe, which in case you're having a hard time with that number, I read some estimates that that is at least equal to the number of grains of sand in all the beaches and deserts on the entire planet. We look around and instead of saying, how great are you, God? We say by the way we neglect him and spurn his moral law by doing what pleases our own desires. How great are you, self? How worthy and deserving you are of every earthly pleasure, self. Oh, self, you are ultimate. We aim to maximize our own happiness and comfort and enjoyment intentionally apart from knowing God, instead of humbly directing our affections and praise to the one real, living, no beginning, no end, all-powerful, all-wise, holy, righteous God. Our elevation and exaltation of self is a mutiny against the God who created us so that we might have the unfathomable privilege of knowing such an awesome God as he. And looking back at our text in Ephesians, Paul says that our nature of living for self results in our being children of wrath. And that all mankind, by nature of their sinful selfishness, are children of wrath. The Bible is exceptionally clear that God is angry at us because of our sin. Hebrews 10.31 says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because we all know that mutinous treachery ought not and must not go unpunished if God is to be God. And when God judges the world, left in our state of deadness, we would rightly be found guilty under his righteous judgment. And Romans 2 says the outcome of that judgment will be tribulation, distress, wrath, and fury poured out on sinners forever. An infinitely holy God must punish any heart which so spurns his glory. If not, he would legitimize their minimization of his glory and would therefore cease to be God, for no higher being exists except God. By the end of verse 3, Paul has established that by our nature, 
by our nature of sinful self-exaltation and opposition to God, we have a humanly insurmountable deadness in our heart, the result of which leads to present separation from God and the promise of eternal separation from him. Friend, listen, God knows this sinful bent of our hearts, and in his justice, he's prepared to pour out his awesome wrath on us as God-denying sinners. And our only hope is that before the righteous judge slams the gavel of judgment in finality, that there would be some offer of mercy, some way to be saved from our deadness. And as our heads are bowed in guilt, verse four, but God, being rich in mercy, should strike our hearts like a thunderbolt. What good news for sinners like you and me. The God we have so grievously offended is rich in mercy. Not begrudgingly merciful, but enthusiastic in mercy. Not stingy in mercy, magnanimous in mercy. Our righteous judge, under whom we sit guilty, delights to spare us from the fury of judgment that we deserve. Because in his mercy, look at verse 4. He loves you with a great love. How can this possibly be? If God, if it is possible that the righteous anger of such a powerful and perfect God could be averted, what better news in all the world could there be? Martin Luther understood the significance of such a possibility when he said, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. Friends, start working on your headstands. The Bible says you can believe it. The mercy of God is so deep and his love for you so great that God devised a way. In fact, God devised the only way from before the foundation of the world for future sinners who would inhabit his creation to be saved from his wrath. The answer lies in the very next phrase of our text. Look with me. God made us alive together with Christ. Jesus Christ, the very son of God, is God's answer. And no other way of salvation exists except for Jesus. Romans 3, 23 to 26, which we read earlier, says that God put forward Jesus to be our substitute to satisfy the righteous wrath of God in himself so that for all who would freely put their faith in him, the debt of their sins would be counted as paid in the death of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the very son of God, who the gospel describes as being eternally with God and in fact is God himself, who from the beginning created all things. He took on human flesh. Jesus Christ was tempted in every way and remained sinless living the perfect life that none of us has lived. Jesus Christ was crucified as the atoning sacrifice who bore the curse of our sin in our place. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, triumphant over death and reigns in heaven now in all of his original glory. And the way we gain right standing with God is through humbling ourselves and believing in Jesus. That is, we receive salvation as an undeserved gift by faith. Verse eight, by grace you have been saved through faith. To have faith in Jesus 
is to acknowledge our utter insufficiency and guilt before the holy God and to trust in his once-for-all sacrifice on our behalf. And when we believe this, God creates a union between us and Christ such that his death is counted as ours, that our old sinful self really has died with Christ. And we're given new life in the risen, reigning Son of God. Our unrighteousness is counted as punished in the body of Christ. The sentence has been imposed and completed, and God clothes you in the perfect righteousness of Jesus so that you can be reconciled with your creator. Our relationship decisively and forever shifts from deserving God's wrath to enjoying all the indescribable benefits of reunion with the one true God. There is no easier remedy. We only need to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Cleave to Jesus Christ as your savior. Add nothing to his offer of salvation and it's yours. It's only hard because our pride hates to think that we're incapable of riding the ship. The message of the Bible is, you are not able. Why would you perish? God has not left us helplessly sitting under his wrath, but offers freely to all the righteousness that he demands of us. And when we trust in Christ, it is really ours. He overcomes the deadness and makes us alive and adopts us into his family as full-fledged heirs of his eternal kingdom. Oh, how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. When our text in Ephesians says that God made us alive together with Christ, that sentence cannot be written in any other way. Our being made alive can only happen through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse five with me as an outline as we make it to the final thrust of this passage. We were dead in our trespasses. That is, we were cut off from God, the source of life, and incapable and indifferent towards delighting in him. God made us alive together with Christ. Jesus Christ is the single unique solution to our deadness, and God makes us alive through faith in Jesus. And finally, by grace you have been saved. What a great salvation is offered to all who would believe on Christ. But if we say we are in Christ, we must be careful with knowing how that came to be, lest we be deceived into thinking something is true of us that is not. If you trust in Jesus, how did that happen to you? And if you don't presently trust in Jesus, what hope do you have that you might? The only conceivable answer, according to our text, is this, that it is owing wholly to the grace of God. Look with me at verses 8 and 9, which are key in understanding the ground of our salvation. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Christian, your salvation from its beginning to its end is owing entirely to God's gracious working in your life and not at all based on your own working. We've already seen in verses one through three 
how rebellious our hearts are towards God. Indeed, how we were following the path of Satan, verse 2, with the rest of the world in an attempt to enthrone ourselves as supreme. None of us would come to see Jesus as glorious and worthy of our affections and indeed of our entire being if God himself didn't overcome the resistance in our hearts towards him. Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. If we are to be saved, God must act decisively in his grace to make it so. Until God sovereignly shines into our darkened hearts and causes us to see Jesus as the wisdom and mercy and glory of God, we are completely blinded to the logic and magnificence of the gospel. By his grace, God creates the very faith that he commands us to have. You may have heard this analogy before. How does Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead in the gospels? He says, Lazarus, come out. The call creates the life. Or if you stand over a sleeping person and you shout, wake up, the shout creates the awakeness. That is exactly how God gives his people the faith which saves. Before his decisive call acted on you, 1 Corinthians 1.23 says that Christ crucified was folly to you. Our hearts dismiss the work of Christ as unimportant, foolish, and irrelevant. Then in a moment of divine working, God causes you to see the glory of Christ no longer as folly, but as the power of God and the wisdom of God. And it's right here in our text over and over again. Verse five, when God made you alive, it was precisely when you were dead in your trespasses, devoid of love for God, nothing being added from your end except for opposition. Verse eight, this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. That it refers to the entirety of our salvation, the grace and the faith. The faith itself is a part of God's grace. Nothing you did made you qualified for the grace, and the faith which now qualifies you for mercy is itself a gift from God. Verse 10, you are his workmanship. You were created in Christ Jesus. A created thing cannot create itself. The language Paul uses is meant to leave no doubt that for anyone who is united to Christ through faith, it is entirely planned and performed by God at a time when we were completely unqualified and undeserving. But if we try to earn our righteousness before God or add anything to the gospel of grace, we nullify that grace that would be ours. Hear this warning from God in Galatians chapter 5, 2 through 6. Paul says to those who would try to justify themselves before God and earn his favor by works, that they are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. No imputation of Jesus' righteousness is given to anyone who would try to present themselves before God as righteous apart from wholehearted reliance on the grace of God. By works of the law, even the most religious-seeming work, no one will be justified. 
Now, do not mistake what I'm saying here to mean that our working doesn't matter. Verse 10 of our text in the whole Bible is abundantly clear. God has prepared good works for us to walk in now that we've been given new life in Christ. God does not save sinners for them to continue in their sin. He does not save you for you to go on delighting primarily in the consumption of earthly temporal things and the maximization of your own comfort and sensual pleasures. If your faith does not work itself out in love and obedience to God, the Bible says it is not a saving faith. New lives of obedience are the necessary evidence of a true faith. When we are truly united to Christ through faith, we are a new creation, his workmanship. And our subsequent lives of obedience are similarly planned and enabled by God. Our right standing with God is by grace and our growth in holiness is by his same grace and might working in us. And if he has planned works for his saved children, then unrepentant walking in darkness, not struggling with sin and humbly waging battle against it by God's help, but willful, unrepentant lives of self-centered, self-exalting living without renewed affections towards God should be a cause of great concern as to the genuineness of that faith. Because God says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. So if he purposes for you to fear and honor him in your heart, he will make it so by his grace. So yes, our obedience and faith matters significantly, but no good works are pleasing to God when we try to use them to circumvent his gracious and loving plan to justify us apart from those works. A plan which cost the life of the infinitely precious Son of God So our salvation relies solely on the free gift of grace because no one will be justified by their works. It's the free offer of grace in Christ or it is hell. There's no conceivable alternative. You can never earn grace because grace ceases to be grace when you treat it as a wage. The gift is undeserved. Otherwise, it's not a gift. And your imperfection is not owed grace. Your imperfection is owed eternal separation from God. There is another ultimate reason, though, for Paul's emphasis on salvation being by grace alone. And we're clued into it by the little phrase at the end of verse 9, that your salvation is by grace and not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If salvation were by our own works, we get the glory and have reason to boast in ourselves. But if God is the author of our salvation, then he gets the glory, and moreover, we get the greater joy. Joy in knowing that our standing before him is secure because it rests not on our achieving some immeasurable standard of working, but on God's faithfulness to his promise to forgive and keep all who would look to Christ and believe on him. Joy in knowing that as surely as Jesus was raised from the dead and is now seated in heaven with God, the Father, look at verse six, we too have been raised from death to life with him. And our place is so sure in heaven that in a real mysterious way, it's as if God has already seated us there with Christ. 
your name, Christian, is written in heaven. Joy in spending eternity with God as he shows us the immeasurable riches of his glory day after day for millennia after millennia with new joys and pleasures into eternity. In God's presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Grace is what saves you and replaces the selfish bent of your heart with a proper orientation of fear, reverence, and delight in God. Grace is what empowers and accomplishes your growth in holiness in defeating the temptations of the flesh and future forever grace in relationship with God is what you are saved for. God's glory is preserved in designing salvation this way, and this means a fuller joy for us. As John Piper says, we get the joy, he gets the glory. Do you see that in verse seven? So that is Paul's explaining the purpose of God giving us new life in Christ. He saves us so that he might display for us his immeasurable riches of grace and kindness in Christ forever. Don't misjudge what is being offered here. God is a fountain of boundless love, majesty, and joy, and we will never exhaust the depths of it. Heaven is a place where the glory of God is on full display for us for ages of ages new facets of his glory being revealed into eternity for our everlasting joy. The riches of his grace and kindness towards us are immeasurable, not hyperbole, and it can be ours only by his grace in drawing us to himself through faith in Jesus Christ. We are the beneficiaries, and in our seeing and delighting in him, God alone gets the glory. Before getting into our text, I started by noting that Scripture alone is the God-given authoritative source of truth. And by examining Scripture, specifically Ephesians chapter 2, we now arrive at a summary statement of salvation. That salvation is by grace alone. That is, it is completely undeserved and owing wholly to the mercy of God And we lay hold of it by faith alone, not on the basis of our works, but through trusting in Jesus Christ alone, whereby God unites us to Christ, giving us his righteousness and makes us alive. And lastly, we add now that God's planning and performing salvation in this way all redounds to the glory of God alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So, in closing, Christian, you were dead because of your sin, and your eternal destiny was wrath, but our God is rich in mercy. And now you are alive because of his grace, and your eternal destiny is glory, Marvel at the wisdom and mercy of God in Christ this week. And to all who don't trust in Jesus, not just those who openly don't believe in him, but to all for whom Jesus is not precious 
as the standing alone basis for your hope, apart from any of your own works, there is an amazing offer of grace to you this morning. Yes, God is just. He must be, and he will punish unrepentant sinners. But God is merciful. He earnestly desires that you be saved from his righteous wrath. God is loving. He put Jesus forward to bear your judgment, bear the judgment your sins deserve. God is benevolent. He will not turn away any who come, humbly come to him for salvation. Neglect him no longer. Trust in Jesus and be reconciled with your creator, no longer as an enemy, but his child forever. Would you pray with me? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of you, God. Your judgments are unsearchable. Your ways are inscrutable. No greater gift can be conceived than that we might escape the deserved penalty of our sin and that you would freely offer us eternal joy in knowing our creator. Help us as we leave this place to love you as our highest treasure. Do it in us, we pray, by your grace and for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. Amen.